Well, I'm not sure what happened, Dennis, but they've, they've let us back in again. They've let us back in. So we're looking after uh, you this week. Good afternoon. Oh, Mark, I'm, I'm very impressed. <laughs> very it's impressed. Al- it's always a great pleasure to do uh, a session like this and such an auspicious person as yourself. <laughs> okay, that $20 is coming your way or lunch or, or a drink a or something. A bit more than that, a bit more a than bit that. More than that. Well, we'll see how we go. <laughs> Look, this week you're going to talk uh, something interesting that we've been having hamburgers all morning. Now we're going to turn over on the other side and have a look at diabetes today. Well, look, it's always an interesting topic to talk about, and, and a lot of people follow up our discussions. So I thought again this morning we'd touch on the topic because it's a condition that's epidemic, as you know, and the more we talk about it, the more people will start to realise the problem of it and start to do things to lessen its onset or help themselves if they have cop the disease. Dennis, a couple of folks ready to talk to you. Are you ready? You've got your wealth of I'm knowledge ready. ready to I'm go? I'm ready. I'm ready. Are you sure? You're ready? Willing well, and able? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, Alrighty. Etch a seat. Etch a seat. Okay, let's go. Good afternoon, Jan at Kerry Bay. You've got a question for Dennis about milk thistle this afternoon. Yes, I have. Um, Dennis, I was recently had to have a CT scan and an ultrasound and they found I had a lot of little cysts on my liver. Oh, yes. Um, and I was reading an article and it was saying that milk thistle is restorative to the liver and I wondered if taking one of those a day um, would be of any use to helping to correct the problem. Okay, look, I can't say for one moment that any one herb would resolve the cysts, but what I can say is that the herb you refer to, known as milk thistle, is in fact better known as St Mary's thistle. Now, I think that needs to be clarified because um, the problem with with talking about herbs is that frequently the same common name will be given to different herbs. Now, in this country, for instance, we frequently uh, speak about milk thistle um, as that herb that we pick from our gardens and feed to our canaries or animals. Uh, that is uh, a milk thistle that is called Sancha solaracea. And uh, it's quite different from the milk thistle that you've been reading about, which is better known as St. Mary's thistle or, botanic- or botanically known as Saliba marianum. Now, Saliba marianum, uh, known as milk thistle but better known as St. Mary's thistle, is probably the best known uh, natural remedy with multiple benefits on the distressed liver. Now, that's the best way that I can uh, talk about it uh, because when we refer to a herb as having restorative or normalising or hepatonic action uh, on the liver, we're talking about a herb that has a a non-specific action. In other words, it doesn't necessarily target any one particular disease, and that's why perhaps it's wrong to talk about this herb being a cure for cysts on the liver. Uh, What I'd be much prefer to see is that here is a herb that has multiple benefits in protecting the liver and restoring the liver, particularly to its its functional levels. For instance, in very many conditions when a patient will have a liver function test, they will find their liver enzymes are unusually elevated. My experience has been that recommending and prescribing what you call milk thistle or St Mary's thistle is that it is one of the most remarkable substances in normalising uh, the, liver, the, the, the enzymes of the liver where, where they've been elevated. So I think you're on the right track. Put it this way. Um, I know a number of people, uh, my wife included, who takes 
uh, a tablet or a capsule of a standardised preparation of St Mary's thistle uh, every day. And uh, I recommend it as being a, a very useful herb uh, for putting an umbrella of protection, if you like, around the liver. And maybe in your case, it might have some benefits. Certainly, it's a harmless herb. It's universally used. It's the most popularly prescribed European natural drug for addressing many, many liver diseases, including including cirrhosis of the liver. So okay. I, I, I would give it a go. It's economical. It's safe. It's well documented. What you should do is uh, get on the net and pump, uh, punch in the name Salibum or Silibum Marianum, and you'll be amazed at the amount of information that you'll find on it. Thank you very much. Some great advice there for you, Jan. And Bill at East Maitland, you've got a very itchy scalp. Hopefully Dennis can help you out there. Hello, Bill. How are you? Oh, good, thank you. Yeah, uh, well, no, I've got a very itchy scalp. Okay. I've now, been... I've, I've had it for, uh, oh, you know, months. And my, I've been... Uh, all these different uh, shampoos... Yes, yes. And none of them, none of them work, you know, I mean... And the one thing I've got is uh, Dermaid, yes. a one percent solution. Yes, yes. That I can rub in. Yes. The chemist gave me that. Yeah. Well, Dermaid is useful, um, but but again, steroid topical applications have got to be used a little bit cautiously. I, I wouldn't like to see any steroid preparation used indefinitely, uh, but that preparation I have used myself occasionally uh, on a bit of eczema or dermatitis. Uh, has your condition been diagnosed as seborrheic dermatitis or anything like that? No, no. It's just been, you know, going to see the doctor and saying, you know, my scalp's really itchy. Okay. Well, look... One of the things you should realise is that there are a number of substances of natural origin, quite apart from using steroids. Now, I'm not in any way at all contradicting what your pharmacist has given you or anything like that, because that preparation is useful. But uh, my view is, my opinion is, wherever you can find something a little bit softer, a little bit, uh, how can you call it, less... Um, uh, less steroidal, give it a go, and you should be aware that in your condition your scalp is predominantly itchy, and if that's the case, I'd be recommending something with some uh, with some pine tar in it. Oh yeah, I, I use the uh, it was a pine tar solution. Yes, the shampoo. Yes, well, pine tar is one of the oldest, most reliable ways of addressing itchy skin conditions, including that of the scalp. Um, so in my view, um, I would be preferring to use that um, at the same time, at the same time, try to look at what might be needed nutritionally to address the condition. And I always think first up when we have dry, itchy, flaking skin conditions, I always think of the B group vitamins. And I would be suggesting that as well as using a topical application, either that which your pharmacist has given you or uh, something like a, a pine tar-based preparation that's readily available, you should get hold of a good B-complex vitamin and give it a chance to do its job over a number of weeks, if not months. And at the same time, there's, there's good literature to suggest that what are called essential fatty acids, which are found in, in a lot of oils when used as a supplement also, can help address many of these pruritic or itchy skin conditions. And one that's very good, 
and one which I've used very frequently is the encapsulated preparation of primrose oil. Now again, with any of these oils, whether they be fish oil, uh, fish oils or primrose oil, they have to be used in the correct dosage. Uh, capsules are readily available. They're very economical. I suggest you go to your health food store or pharmacy uh, and get hold of something topically with pine tar in it, get some B-group vitamins, and also look at the possibility of getting some capsules of primrose oil and, and dig it on that for a couple of months. Oh, thank you very much, Dennis. Pleasure. Wonderful. And uh, now I've got a qu- we've got a question from Barry at Hawksnest yes. for you, Dennis. Now, I'm going to have a crack at getting the name of this right okay. before we bring, bring Barry on. Glucosaplex? Glucosaplex. Oh, I was nowhere near it, was I? Glucosaplex. There we go. Good afternoon, Barry. Dennis has got you. Hello, Barry. Good, much. Oh, good afternoon, Dennis. Dennis, I've just got back uh, the Glucosaplex uh, tablets have arrived. Thank you so much for it's that. A pleasure. And it's then a pleasure. we'll continue there to uh, check that. Uh, Dennis, just a, two quick questions, if I may. Yes. Um, on the adult uh, dosage, my wife's yes. uh, mentioned here take five tablets once to twice daily. Yes. But they're quite large and. I think this is the second day, and she just feels that the 10 might be too okay. much, like she's ha- having trouble uh, okay. swallowing that number, Dennis. The op- this the is op- early onset osteo, so... Yes. Um, she wouldn't need to take what I consider to be the, the optimum dose. I use, oh, okay. I use my own pro- product, Leucosoplex, myself. Uh, yes, I remember you saying. At this very aged state of my existence, yeah. <laughs> I find that I <laughs> no, need you're it. All right. look, I, I get by by taking yep. three capsules in the morning, or three tablets in the morning, and yep. two at night. And yeah, I, I won't move from that. And uh, yep. uh, I would suggest that with your wife, just work at that. Most people using yes. that preparation called Glucosaplex get yes. by with just five tablets a day. Oh, that's lovely. Three in the morning and two at well, night. Well, that's what I Dennis, do. thanks that's very much do. for that. We've got a question from Jenny at Edgeworth. You've got a question for Dennis about essential oils today. Yes, thank you. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jenny. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Just um, wanting your thoughts on whether you think essential oils are a good thing for sort of, you know, like health reasons or whether to use them internally or topically or like in a diffuser, whether they have a benefit for your health and that? Well, the first thing I would say is that essential oils are potentially some of the most toxic substances that that we know of. Right. Uh, If if you were to take a five mil dose of uh, some of the most common essential oils you would be a very 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 sick person so i'm one of those that have reservations about recommending or concurring with the the oral taking of essential oils now if you are if if you're being treated by a professional sometimes you you might find that they're using a preparation where an essential oil was a was a starting base for the preparation for instance i'll give you an example there is a, a preparation in the British Pharmacopoeia and also in the British Pharmaceutical Codex called Essence of Peppermint, sometimes called Spirit of Peppermint. And, right. what, and what that is is a preparation that takes one part peppermint oil and dilutes it with nine parts of rectified spirit. And that preparation is sometimes used uh, in nothing more than a half a mil dose in preparations with other herbs to, uh, to address gut conditions. So right. there you have, if you like, a pharmaceutical way of harnessing 
an essential oil and presenting it for a particular disease condition in a particular dosage, and that's fine. But when you're using it ad hoc, uh, without any dosage parameters, and when it's not been diluted or attenuated with something else, you have to be very, 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 very cautious. Now, having said that, having said that, I'm a great fan of essential oils being used in preparations like vaporizers, for instance. Right. Yeah. My my kids had had great. Uh, value during their, their their life, if you like, as as infants, when we would use preparations like olbus oil and put that in a vaporizer, and that had a valuable effect, I'm sure, in in helping them breathe a little bit easier at night. Uh, right. And similarly, when you're using it in a diffuser or forms like that, I've got no problem with that. There, you are harnessing the benefits of aromatic substances that may be inhaled and therefore can do a lot of benefit, particularly for the upper respiratory tract, Mm, where many of them can clear. And indeed, some of the preparations, the older preparations used in pharmacy, uh, are based on aromatic oils from particular herbs and substances. So I'm a great fan of them, don't get me wrong, and I I would encourage a sensible use of, of inhalants and uh, oils used in diffusers, but I come back to the point, uh, be very cautious about using them as oral uh, substances when they're not converted into a pharmaceutical preparation. Right, and what about topically, like if you were to use something uh, like an oil topically or something like I've got that? No, would, I've got no problem with that. that uh, would, they're, does they're, that sort of get into your body? Like well, so, the, some of it would be... Some of it would be uh, taken up, if you like, by the the small blood vessels, but the amount that would actually get into your bloodstream, I suspect, would be very, very minimal. And remember, remember, uh, topical applications are meant to deal essentially with the skin and surface conditions where there's just enough take-up of the substance to lessen some of the itch or some of the inflammation. And there there are very many uh, topical applications based on the essential oils or the aromatic principles extracted from herbs and barks and things like that. Even menthol, for instance, is a derivative of a herb, and that is a a magnificent cooling anti-itch preparation that is found in many, many preparations, and even pine tar. That is a resin uh, extracted from the from the from the pine tree, the pine bark, and that is an aromatic substance again, which is used topically. So there are many preparations based on essential oils or aromatic principles um, that c- can be uh, benefited or benefit the skin. Maybe Bill could have used that on his itchy scalp earlier. Well, look, he could. In fact, I mentioned to to Bill um, uh, pine tar preparations Mm. because whether it be pine tar or coal tar, it's well known that those substances, some of the oldest, by the way, known in medicine and pharmacy, uh, have a remarkable effect. In in fact, I'll tell the listeners a little story of that just for a second or two. Um, As a young man living away from home, um, living in Sydney, uh, and uh, studying engineering, living on the smell of an oil rag, um, I went down with very, very bad eczema. And um, I couldn't tolerate steroid preparations, and my eczema was quite severe. An elderly nursing sister who was living next door to the residence where I was boarding worked at uh, Camberdown Children's Hospital, and she knew that I had eczema. She did, said, Dennis, this is what we use on the kids at Camberdown. I said, oh, interesting. She said, this is the ointment. 
And the name of the ointment was Zema, Z-E-M-A. I remember it to this day. I didn't realise then what that stood for. stood for X for anyway. And uh, I started using that preparation, which I used to get from an arcade in Sydney and a little pharmacy shop there. Now, that Exma ointment, or Zema ointment as it was called, had a significant amount of pine tar in it. And that, in my opinion, gave me more relief topically for my eczema than some of the steroid creams. And I used that for many, many, many years. So there's an example of a cream that I used as a young man based on a resin or an essential oil that gave us what one of the oldest preparations, pine tar, for addressing many skin conditions that are itchy and inflammatory. And who's to say, Dennis, oils ain't oils? Well done, Mark. You're such an educated man. We'll be back with more of Dennis Stewart next. Dennis, time to have a look at our topic for today, which is diabetes. Now, I guess you potentially receive lots of inquiries regarding things to do to lessen the onset of type 2 diabetes to begin with, Mm -hmm. and perhaps also to help the condition. Have you got some thoughts on your program there? Look, the reason I'm taking up this topic again today, Mark, is that whenever we talk about it, there's a considerable amount of feedback and and interest on it. And um, it's an appropriate topic to continually bring before listeners because diabetes is an epidemic disease, and I'm referring uh, to type 2 diabetes. Now, it's important for listeners to understand that there are two forms of diabetes, type 1, which is an autoimmune disease, and that is a disease that needs to be acutely medically managed. Um, It's a condition that, uh, whilst it might benefit peripherally from dietary advice, etc., generally speaking, uh, what we're talking about today is type 2, which used to be called late-onset diabetes. Sometimes it's also referred to as insulin resistance. And this is the level, or this is the type of diabetes that um, is in epidemic proportions, Mm -hmm. mainly because, I put it to you, uh, things have changed in the modern era. Um, Our diet has become more carbohydrate-centred. Our diet has become more riddled with sugar. And we've become more sedentary. And as a result of that, Um, people are now being diagnosed with potentially uh, late onset diabetes and frequently their doctor or health professional will tell them to start to do things before they need to be placed on medication. Now, my advice to anyone who is looking down the barrel at uh, type 2 diabetes or wants to offset the possibility of it is to first of all get familiar with it. Education. Education is crucial. And what listeners need to realise, there is enough information now out there on almost any human condition for us to become reasonably familiar with the sorts of things that need to be known. And with reference to type 2 diabetes, there is that much good, sensible literature written for lay people that I'm not going over the top when I say the first thing that one should do in seeking to address this problem is to become familiar with it. And listeners would have heard me mention the book before on this program by the good doctor, Dr. Sandra Cabot, and her comrade, Margaret Jasinska. And I'll go slowly when I mention the book because people frequently ring my rooms at New Lampton and ask for me to repeat the name of it. The name of the book is entitled Type 2. You can reverse it naturally. I'll say it again. Type 2 Diabetes... You Can Reverse It Naturally by Dr. Sandra Bow and Margaret Zasinska. Now, that is a gem, 
and it's easily read and it has a mountain of information about the nature of the disease and a mountain of information about things that we can do that will lessen the onset of it or lessen the development of it. So principle number one, get to know the nature of the disease. Dennis, you, you mentioned that things have changed, and we know they yep, have. Yep. Sedentary lifestyle aside, which yep. is basically we're becoming more lazy and more stressed, mm. working more, all of yep. that. But yep. with the sugar in our foods, this kind of goes back to, I think, what, the 60s, where there was that debate on whether fat is bad or sugar Correct. is bad. And it turns out that, sadly, uh, sugar won. Look, you're, you're touching a raw nerve here because uh, that event in my opinion, is responsible for a lot of health problems today. Mm. Uh, A lot of good foods that we used to eat were bypassed because it was proposed or presented at that stage that they weren't good for us, that um, they would raise our cholesterol levels and uh, we needed to steer away from things like eggs and Mm. cheese and milk, all the things, by the way, that generations in this country had been raised on. These things were put up and presented by sometimes authorities as things that were problematical. And what happened? We moved from these essentially protein foods in the direction of cheaper foods, particularly the carbohydrates and things like, for instance, the pastas. Now, there's nothing the matter with pasta, but the way in which carbohydrates began to creep into the diet, into breakfast cereals, into almost any meal, was indicative of the change that took place. Now, fortunately, fortunately, most of that has been debunked. And you will find that it's already happening in some of the most important recent books written on diet and nutrition. There's a retreat back to protein. There's a warning, a big warning, of the danger of too much carbohydrate and how it contributes towards weight gain, and feeds the drift towards type 2 diabetes. And there's warning, warning, warning coming out now in the popular media about the way in which sugar has, to a large extent, in my opinion, polluted our diet. And there has been a number of works written in recently just demonstrating the way in which a curtailment of sugar can dramatically alter the profile of the individual. I think that one of the most book, one of the most important books is, is uh, uh, let me think, it was called um, Sweet Poison. Sweet Poison. That was written by a well-known legal personality, who uh, stripped a lot of weight off himself, and then went on to point out the way in which concentrated levels of sugar in the diet was responsible for a lot of heart disease, and certainly one of the feeding factors that promote a type two diabetic tendency. Be cautious. I say this to listeners. We need sugar, but be cautious of everything you purchase. Everything you purchase, that you look at the label, see how much sugar's in it, see how much carbohydrate's in it. No one knows that, Mark, better than myself because I manage my own type 2 tendency by the things that I say to listeners. Health Naturally with Dennis Stewart. Dennis, we'll be back in a moment to talk a little bit more about uh, diabetes. However, we're heading to Neith. And Irene, you've got a question for Dennis about varicose veins this afternoon. Yes, I do. Um, I've got trouble with my varicose veins and they're quite painful. I wondered if there was anything I could take or Mm. do other than wear precious stockings. (laughs) Well, look, wearing the stockings is useful and obviously your doctor is 
recommended that in keeping an eye on you. But yes. a couple of little things that might be useful, and I say might be useful because depending upon the severity of the condition, this will largely determine how useful this advice might be. But using natural substances has always been a fairly popular approach, particularly in European countries, to address this problem. Now, there are yes. two There are two main uh, groups of remedies that are used in natural medicine. One group uh, is known as the bioflavonoids. Now, bioflavonoids. bioflavonoids. Now, there are multiple bioflavonoids. And bioflavonoids, as I've frequently said on this program, are extracted from fruits, vegetables and herbs. They're natural substances, but they're extracted. And in their isolated form, they have various uh, capacities. Now, one of those bioflavonoids is called rutin, R-U-T-I-N. Write that down. Now, rutin, R-U-T-I-N, and and, uh, how can you call it? A more sophisticated uh, name for them would be ruticides, R-U-T-O-S-I-D-E-S. Now, your pharmacist or your herbalist or naturopath would know what I'm talking about. Now, Now, rutin, whilst it occurs in many foods and it's classically found in, in, in the food buckwheat, it, in its extracted form, when taken as a supplement, usually as a capsule or as a yep. tablet, when taken ongoingly on a daily basis in the right dosage, it can sometimes lessen the distension of the vein and contribute, contribute to stabilising its diameter and its swelling. Now, I could could go into it in a much more physiological way and talk about what bioflavonoids do to the vein wall, but I won't. Essentially, bioflavonoids, particularly rutin, work in seeking to restore the elasticity of the vein or lessening the tendency that it has for distension. So orally, if you like, it's supporting your compression stocking. Very safe exceedingly safe substances and very economical. Uh, your, your pharmacist there, I'm sure you're, you're at Neath, uh, the pharmacist uh, in Cessnock would have it, uh, Sally Bowen's practice in Cumberland Street would have them. That's the starting base always, in my opinion. Now, right. the second line of defence that is using substances to lessen, to slow down or to improve the condition, there are a couple of herbs which yes. are foundational for, for helping this condition, and one of them is called horse chestnut. Horse chestnut, oh yes, I've heard of that. Right, and the other one is called butcher's broom. Butcher's broom? Butcher's broom. Now, that's a very interesting herb, butcher's broom. Uh, listeners might be interested to, to know something about the history of these things, but you've all heard about the way in which the, the Roman um, army, uh, to this day, is considered to be one of the most uh, renowned group of troops for their marching capacity. They could march, and not just march, they jogged everywhere they went in full armour and jogged for hours and hours and hours. And some historians, looking at diet and things like that and looking at medicine, argue that the prowess of the Roman troops in their ability to run and run and run was put down to their regular daily use of using butcher's broom. Dennis, how how exhausted would you be? By the time you got to where you were going, you'd have no energy left to fight. Oh, they, they had good physicians with them. <laughs> have to. So, so whether, whether that's folklore or not, it reinforces the long historic association between that herb, butcher's broom, and the other better-known herb, 
horse chestnut, whose chemistry is well known and preparations, again, can be obtained in a tablet form or capsule form. If I were someone who had varicose veins, I would... Or, by the way, hemorrhoids, because they're two uh, synonymous conditions virtually. I would be taking those two things. Sometimes also, and I won't give you a full talk on this, sometimes preparations of the distilled extract of witch hazel as a lotion loosely bandaged on, loosely bandaged on at night, has sometimes given relief also to reinforce the compression stocking. Uh, Dennis, before we wrap up with uh, diabetes today, just we had a call from Annette at Curry wanting to know if surface veins can be treated the same as varicose veins. You say predominantly yes? Yes, Annette, look, if you've got those what we call surface veins, I think the bioflavonoids particularly are most useful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Annette. Now, we are back talking diabetes today, but first, Dennis, you want to talk about a glucometer. Yeah, look, a lot of what I've said today on the topic is reinforcing getting familiar with the condition and looking at ways in which we can work with our healthcare professionals, particularly our doctors, in making sure that we're doing things that can improve the condition. Education's important. The other thing I recommend is to get hold of what's called a glucometer, and that is to become familiar with taking your blood sugar levels, particularly if you are type 2, insulin resistant, even if you're being managed by your GP or health professional, getting hold of a unit, what we call a glucometer, which means by pricking the finger a couple of times a day, particularly in my case, I do it before breakfast and before dinner at night, that allows you to diarise what your blood sugar levels are doing, which is useful for your GP, and which also gives you an idea of how you're going with some of the help measures you're carrying out. Dennis, once you've found that you are suffering from type 2 diabetes, are there some herbs that can help and there's some that you would emphasise? And Look, I'll be quick because I know time's gone. There are three herbs which, in my opinion, uh, are crucial to think about using for type 2. Bitter melon's number one. And that's why I developed the bitter melon powder. Look at the literature. Bitter melon, a powdered preparation with a good reputation for type 2. Also, think about using the herb Gymnema sylvestra, an Indian herb used in most over-the-counter preparations to seek to control or help maintain stable blood sugar levels. And don't overlook the use of cinnamon. A teaspoonful of cinnamon at night may be useful also in, in, in reference to this condition with other measures and getting you involved in helping yourself with this condition. And on top of that, Dennis, it's tasty. Cinnamon. Well, of course. Everything I recommend is tasty, <laughs> Wayne. You know that. Oh, that was, that was some massive big giant pills we started talking about with this, this afternoon. I, I can't imagine that would have been too nice to swallow. If you, if you <laughs> jump into them, you'll realise how nice they are. I'm going to ask you very quickly, Dennis, yeah, because we hear yeah. all sorts of things with, with diabetes. In your opinion, in yeah. your experience, do you think it, the condition is reversible? Look, Can you go back to a state where you're not having it? I, I I'm always reluctant to use terms like that. Because mm. uh, I know look, that's a bit of an absolute, isn't it? If we look at the, the, the name of the, of the book that was written by the good doctor that I've mentioned, she says, diabetes type 2, you can reverse it naturally. Now, that's the name of a book mm. written by the good doctor. Um, who am I to contradict that? But my view is that in any condition, it's better to use the term management rather than cure. Dennis, a nice place to leave it. Thank you for that. We'll be back with you next uh, Friday afternoon after midday. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. 
Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.